0: And I'll tell you, um, I could not be happier about some of the feedback we've been getting.
1: Yeah, man. People seem to dig it. I was eating some Hawaiian food uh, this evening. Uh, no, this midday, this lunchtime. Uh, as Douglas Adams said, time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. Uh, with MC Douglas. Adamisk, the formerly MC Adamisk, um, <laughs> uh, whose hometown I currently happen to be residing in work, uh, Monday through Thursday, we're having some Hawaiian food, and he was, he said it was his favorite podcast right now. Like, first new podcast he started listening to in a long time. I was like, damn. That's, that's, that's cool. good.
0: That's good to hear. I like hearing that. Um, yeah. Literally everyone that I've talked to that has listened to the show so far has really enjoyed it. Um, we've got something special here, and it's born from the magic of ignorance in the eyes of babes. It is. And hopefully we're going to get to a point where this shit is just not surprising anymore. And people are going to tune in and be like, yeah, obviously that, of course that's the way this shit is. <laughs> and they'll, uh, they'll have learned them something. Right. And that's, that's when we know our job is done. Right. Like that's when we can pass the torch.
1: What's well, the thing. It's not, you know, it's not like, uh, there's, there's no end point for this, you know, ignorance is a lifestyle, you know? And, and one thing oh, I want to clarify, you know, just make sure, I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, people might, misunderstand what the intent is here the intent here is not for us to feel like we're schooling you because we know everything the whole idea is we're all really fucking stupid and we all assume oh, everybody so much shit that is just groundless <laughs> and you know it just so happens that i myself and beaker are the kind of person that every once in a while when you we, we realize that hey wait a minute why do we do that every day? Why do I assume and I look it up, you know, and I, I wait till I can actually find a source that seems pretty, you know, uh, you know, viable. Seems like a, legit. A I mean,
0: you got to be honest. A major part of this is that you have to have the frame of mind where not everything you digest is uh, good for you. Oh, yeah. Right? You you can't believe everything that's written.
1: Absolutely, man. See, the, the great thing, Wikipedia gets a lot of shit uh, for being unreliable. The great thing about Wikipedia, if you use it correctly, Wikipedia is not a source. Wikipedia is a great, uh, it is an aggregate of sources. You know, you can go to the Wikipedia page and find some links to some primary, more often secondary sources that have links to primary sources for a lot of things and you can see the sources that people cite for a piece of information and vet it you can say this source seems reliable or this source is clearly bullshit you know that's wikipedia is fantastic for that that's a good way to distill things down to well here's the basis for why people believe this and no other tool is quite uh quite serves that function like wikipedia does I like
0: that. it's true um and i <clears throat> i've always felt like there's a balance right and it's fr- i i cast it between two of my favorite human philosophers emmanuel kant and george carlin mm. <laughs> and w- when when you consider emmanuel kant he he had the categorical imperative and one of the, as one of the founders for rational philosophy kant you know kant emmanuel kant. kant okay um one of the, One of the main responsibilities that we have as cognizant thinkers is to always deliver truthful information because if you don 't you poison the well right it 's not someone 's fault if they believe a, a a pretty or legitimate sounding lie and then they distribute that misinformation and you 've hurt you 've literally hurt the species yeah right and i I think that majorly comes into play, especially in the information age, and again it goes to George Carlin who said you need to always remember how stupid the average motherfucker really is. And If you look at the average person on the street and you listen to the words they say and you watch their behaviors and you think, Jesus Christ, what a dumb son of a bitch. Stop yourself and then remember half of
1: everyone else is dumber than him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you look in the mirror and, and realize that half of everyone else is looking at you the exact same way you're looking at that dumb motherfucker
0: <laughs> it's yeah it is just the way that the system is set up um and instead of instead of embracing that you know and uh i just like you said ignorance is such a lifestyle it is instead okay. of embracing that you should strive to better yourself if you're not going to work on the treadmill in the gym you know at least work your mental treadmill a little <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's I've, I I'm I've been I, I've sort of an obsession with primary sources. Uh, I I created for my reactions folder a a picture the, the why you know picture that says why you know post link to primary source, uh, and I mean you know for for factual stuff obviously you know the 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 need is is understandable, but uh, I mean you know it comes down to another issue as far as yeah, I mean we're both we're both artists we're both producers musicians, um, and. You know, accreditation is, you know, something that in today's day is, is uh, in low supply and high demand. You know, we have entire sites looking at you, Imgur, uh, imager, and Funny Junk and other bullshit sites like that, Nine Gags, that just, you know, sort of like Wikipedia, they aggregate things but unlike wikipedia they sever the source people will post shit to Im- imgur just to remove the source the author the link to the guy who made this web comic bef- and before and i gotta be honest it.
0: man huh that's a problem for me i i hate that tendency and it's it's, it's really, fucking bullshit dude it's exploded with the micro blogging thing right like somewhere along the along the way It became too much of an effort to cite your source. And, uh, you know, my wife is a school teacher, right? And she struggles with this. We've talked about this before, where the dynamics of her classroom teaching literature and English and, you know, the the blue book style of notating your sources, like specifically what we're talking about. You have to refabricate how you teach that to these students because they
1: have no idea. Well, and even is not a source. The author of that article is your source. Even more than that. even more than that, it's become preferable to have something without the source. You know, if something has a source out, that clutters up the you know what you're trying to convey.
0: Because for the love of God, nobody wants to go back to the source and read about any of the investigative information that led them to their conclusions. Right? Heaven forbid. So if
1: everyone who loves this comic, of course, none of them want to see more comics about the same shit by the same guy. You know, so I I, I sort of make it a point the my little uh, my my. Sort of little <laughs> fight in this battle is uh, two things. Anytime I see a, a web comic posted online, not primary source, I try to comment with a link to the the actual web comic, so people can see other stuff. You know, hey, you know, I'll try to be a dick about it. Just you know, hey, this guy's great. Check out more of his stuff or whatever. And it's usually pretty easy well, to find with reverse image searches. But also, I, I actually I, uh, am a dick about it. I'll also, I always make sure that. Uh, uh, Adblock is whitelisted on Imgur and FunnyJunk and 9 Gay. Every one of those sites that just their entire business model it, you know depends on getting ad revenue for people looking at stolen content. I I disable all of their ads. <laughs>
0: well, it's it's like the it's the adult swim effect, right? And we see it bleeding into all types of media. Um it's that pandering to the unrealistic a d d expectations of of these uh what's a what is a good word for people like us nowadays we're we're like information sloths right we we want to sit in this tree and be surrounded by it, but we very lazily and listlessly pick at just the most prime nuggets that we want to pull out
1: information pandas. It's, how about pandas? Information pandas. Here's the great Hell thing about yeah, pandas, panda. um, and I I was I came across this when I was doing research for this episode. Just it wasn't related, it was interesting. Uh, pandas don't eat exclusively bamboo. Uh, the only creature that only eats bamboo is the bamboo mite. Uh, <laughs> I think I knew that. Pandas like eucalyptus as well, right? Uh, you're thinking koalas, but koala's so here's the thing: I I pandas pretty much only eat bamboo because it grows really fucking fast and pandas are really fucking lazy. They just eat what's Ugh. in reach. That's literally <laughs> like they're omnivores. They if there's no panda around, they'll eat grass. If there like if a rat runs by them, they'll pick up the rat and eat it. <laughs> they'll eat birds. It's just whatever they happen to be able to pick up.
0: They eat. It's whatever is in arm's reach is what a panda will eat. Yes.
1: It just so happens that most of the time that's bamboo because when they were near bamboo, the bamboo kept growing so fucking fast that there was always more bamboo within reach. So that tends to be what they eat most.
0: <laughs> and for, for all we know, you know, pandas are such stuffy prima donna little shits. Right. They, they might not even like bamboo. It just happens to be there. Right? That's what that we would are. Be a total panda decision.
1: That's what we are to information. We just actually, I totally fucking agree just, with
0: that. You don't have to give a shit yeah. what the top fifteen things are that moving in with your next boyfriend might mean for your apartment. But right. by God, we'll read the fucking article. <laughs> I, I just—I just read some fucking BuzzFeed article. Gonna...
1: Like I actively hate BuzzFeed, and I just read the entire. I was reading a BuzzFeed article, the seventeen things that prove Tumblr is the best history teacher, and. I had to get up to Jesus shit,
0: Christ. and
1: I I clicked my Chrome to phone. I fucking sent that shit to my phone so I could read it while I shit. I don't care. That's, I don't that's care. amazing to me. But it's there. The
0: 15 Reasons Why Tumblr is the Best History Teacher. You should know straight away, we were talking about that, you know, common sense part that you need earlier. <laughs> it, yes. It, if anybody says Tumblr's the best source of education on any fucking topic turn and walk the other way well my favorite
1: thing about that list uh you know 17 things that prove tumblr is the best history teacher the first thing was literally some dude saying so my history teacher told us no your history teacher is the best fucking history teacher that's not tumblr that's a dude citing his actual history teacher tumblr is is not a source of anything
0: tumblr you're the one that said accreditation right you want credentials yeah this gentleman has them
1: (laughs) yeah No one, you know, no one who's going viral on Tumblr, with very little exception, is posting original content, you know? Certainly no no one who, uh, information-based.
0: Absolutely not.
1: um, Uh, This would probably be a great time to plug our sister site, accuratefunfacts.tumblr.com.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Our Accurate Fun Facts Tumblr, your best education source for accurate fun facts. Yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But no, I it's seriously, y'all should you should look at the title of our Tumblr and the first thing you should think is I'll bet these facts are neither accurate nor fun. Yes,
1: absolutely. Fortunately, absolutely. Uh, wow, well, it's you know, I tried to pause the queue because it just wasn't getting much traffic and we've been focusing on the podcast, but it keeps just po- posting <laughs> unfinished shit from the queue. Uh in general, I try to post links to primary sources with each of those, so, um, you know, the first several dozen, you can definitely find those, the first, I think, 88 or so, but uh, I'll be going in and cleaning up and putting sources in when I get a chance. Um, God, that's
0: a lot, that's a lot of shit, too. Yeah, but hey, today's... We'll have no shortage tonight, because we, like, the show for tonight, it was a last minute selection, and I think we chose it because it's such a broad and awesome topic, for for this kind of quirky information. Oh yeah. Um oh yeah. The human body and medicine, the the body med- medicina throughout human history has been one of the most fucked up things you could possibly imagine. One of my favorite jokes came from the Simpsons when Homer was seeing the doctor and he said that uh the doctor like checked him in the front. He said, yeah, but the problem's in my back. And The doctor said, oh, no, we don't know too much about the back. There's too much neat stuff in the front. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a perfect correlation for what medicine in our human history truly is. It, whatever weird. is at the forefront and obvious is all that we study. And in our thousands of years, literally thousands of years, the most important things have never changed. Our sources of medicine are still the same. Our natural approaches and remedies to most of our common ailments are still the same. Even if we refine them in laboratories, if we create perfectly balanced medications, their root is still the same. Yeah. So, uh, medicine in the human body, it's one of those things I don't think we'll ever fully understand it. Um, you know, from the, from the human genome to the complexity of the human brain, down to the basic shit we do know, like our, our blood cells and platelets. It's it's extremely complicated and entertaining to try and take in the history. Oh yeah,
1: now yeah, there's there's literally nothing that we've ever studied that we understand fully. No nothing. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be spending several episodes on medicine specifically. This is just gonna be sort of the human body episode. Uh, we're gonna be focusing on just your your body. You know your bod. Your body. bod. Your <laughs> bod. What a weird well, 90s, it's such 80s term. The bod. I love the bod,
0: man. Um, Osmosis Jones, holy shit. Such a good movie. Such a good movie. Osmosis Jones was hella great. Kid Rock's best performance, in my opinion.
1: I think that's fair. Oh, 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 Joe fair. Dirt. What about, you know, Os- Osmosis Jones was better.
0: Yeah, hell yeah, Osmosis Jones was better than a cameo in Joe
1: Dirt. Yeah. Shh.
0: Who was that gal in Joe Dirt, though? The girl on the horse? She had the penis, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia.
1: I don't remember who it was.
0: Does, doesn't matter. She's gorgeous. That <laughs> uh, I would like to examine her human body.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll start off. I got, a, I got a fact that will terrify all of you, hopefully. Uh, so um, you know how everyone always says uh the human body is 75% water or whatever
0: Yeah that's the 75% water is a pretty standard uh
1: thing people hear Yeah uh so I don't know about that but I do know that by weight the human body is 10% non-human cells like we we have approximately a, a healthy human has approximately 10,000 species of bacteria living in and on your body. And, Everywhere. Yeah, oh my goodness. And a healthy Some human gross is facts. carrying 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells.
0: 10 times as many. For That's every gross.
1: cell in your body that is you, there are 10 bacteria
0: which is, it's crazy when you think about the fact that they're necessary. Yeah, that's like, the it thing. Seem, not... It seems gross, Yeah, but it's not. These are all factory workers keeping this machine running. Right.
1: Well, I mean, most of them. Mostly. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously some of them are, you know, harmful bacteria, harmful vir- viri. They they get in there all the time. But, you know, a lot of these are just... If you're
0: just... Chadley, then like three pounds of yeast on your genitals.
1: Oh, for sure. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh Chadley has a reoccurring genital issue with yeast infections. Yeah.
1: Uh the vast majority are benign and many are beneficial. Um and they account for approximately ten percent of dry body weight. That's fucking crazy. That's, That's terrifying. You know, like I know it really is. I know, you know, like intellectually, you know, there's well, I mean, they're here, you know, they've been on my hands and in my mouth. And, you know, all over me and inside of me, my entire life, they're here, nothing's happening. But it's still just, uh, it just makes your skin crawl, you know? It makes your skin feel like it is crawling. They're going to work. Uh,
0: There's also a plethora of really interesting human parasites. Oh, yeah. Um, my My favorite of which, are you familiar with the forehead mite? I am not. Oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. And anybody listening, if you've got one of those janky-ass, like, 30, 50, 100X microscopes in your home, grab a piece of scotch tape and put it over your eyebrows and let it sit for a few seconds and then yank it off. There is a 90% chance, 9 out of 10 people, literally everybody's got these. It's kind of like HPV, are tiny little mites that live in the follicles on your head and scalp. And they get down into your eyes to slurp up delicious wet eye juice while you sleep. Um, forehead mites are everywhere. Nearly everybody's got them. And they look like tiny little lobsters that live in
1: your eyebrow follicles. I do remember reading about this.
0: Oh, yeah. Google forehead mites. Um, they're scary looking. And you, like, you'll have <clears> to come to peace with the fact that you've got them. But <laughs> it's w- one example of the many neat things that are living on you and eating your precious fluids.
1: Yeah, that's our... Oh, ooh, very nice Dr. Strangelove reference. I like that, precious fluids. Very good. Um, so uh, talking a little bit more about sort of germs, I got some good stuff on germs. Um, which item... In a bathroom, do you think has the most germs? Which item in in my bathroom
0: has the most germs on it? Yes, my my toothbrush.
1: You are correct, sir.
0: I'd, it had to be toothbrush, right? Toothpaste has got sugar in it, and that thing goes into some disgusting places.
1: Oh, oh, you'd love to think it's about where it goes, but no, 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 it is about what happens to it. So, uh, according to a 2010 research study by University of Manchester over in uh, grand old England, the average toothbrush hosts up to 100 million bacteria, uh, various strains of Staphylococcus, which causes oh, skin rasses. Uh, you, you may know that as MRSA. Uh, e. coli, which you may remember from when... Jack in the box was killing people in the nineties. Uh, Hey, Jack in the box is still delicious. Yeah. uh,
0: A little bad mayonnaise never hurt anybody except those hundreds of people. Yeah. Uh,
1: the viruses that cause all three, all three types of hepatitis, uh, all this stuff. Uh, it not only picks up stuff from your mouth, uh, which by the way, contains approximately 600 different species of bacteria at a time. Um, Here's where most of this shit comes from. Uh, literally, shit. So every time you flush your toilet,
0: flush the toilet. Yeah. The spray back gets on your toothbrush, huh? It
1: coats every object within six feet. A six foot spherical radius around your toilet gets entirely coated in this fine, bacteria rich mist. And occasionally virus-rich mix. Uh, so, you know, go ahead. If if you're concerned about that, I mean, it's, it hasn't hurt you so far. But maybe, you know, maybe just shut your toilet lid before you flush it. Uh, but here's the thing. Most of these bacteria are harmless unless they enter the bloodstream. Even then, a lot of these uh, bacteria and the viruses pose very little threat to an, a healthy adult or child. Um, and interestingly enough, only certain mutant strains of E. coli are able to cause disease in humans.
0: Now that that is interesting, yeah. But it's not uncommon. Um, a lot of a lot of viruses, as we know them, have to go through some form of mutation in order to attack a human host. Right. But that's not because of the differences in our biological makeup, right? That's more based on the differences between average body temperatures, oxygenation of blood levels, and things of that nature. Well, it's, it's just the, the nature bi- of the
1: virus itself. Uh, so, I mean, the standard virus isn't able to... You know, this virus is in the midst of evolution. There is a mutation that tends to happen in this virus. When it happens, it makes it able to find a host in humans and replicate more. And eventually, the the strains of this virus that are not able to do that are going to die out. And, you know, this is conjecture, but most likely the strains of E. coli that are able to live on and, and continue breeding in humans are going to come out as the dominant species of E. coli, you know, as, as evolution, as natural selection moves on. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. Um, Everyone talks about, you know, genetic modified (laughs) organisms, you know, they're they're taking genes from salmon and putting them in tomatoes. And it's, you know, vegan. That's so that's called genetic recombination. That's old technology. Oh, Ancient. That's 15, 20, 25 year old technology. People aren't doing that anymore. Do your ancestors ever get
0: hooked up in an arranged marriage? By definition, what's that? If your if your ancestors ever got hooked up in an arranged marriage, by definition, you're a GMO yourself.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and here's the thing: Uh, genetic recombination isn't really how uh, how food is is genetically engineered. Well, absolutely not. It's
0: not even fair to say that that's really how you genetically modify an organism.
1: Right. Well, I mean, agriculture, by definition, is genetic engineering. Absolutely. But even talking about, like, in the lab, splicing genes and shit, you know, recombination of a, a, non, a, a non-indigenous gene into a species from, a, from a, a other species is not even really done much. What's done is that a known mutation... That happens in this species, for instance, you know this E. coli has a natural mutation that has something happen. You know, there is um, now a tomato that has a known mutation that happens sometimes, that makes it able to withstand frost even better than this weird salmon gene that we were kind of shanking into it in the '90s did. And now that's the gene that we use, that is a natively tomato gene because it works better. It's more effective. You have a, a better yield. You know, more of the actual species that you're trying to manipulate survive. And it's, you know, it's using the actual, you know, uh, the actual genetic programming that already exists in the species to turn genes on and off that are already there.
0: And, and we happen to know that that is the most effective way to treat ailments or to produce desired physical outcomes, even in humans. Uh, yep. We see that we've been treating human beings with human growth hormone for almost five decades now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I just uh, yep. I wanted to contribute and sound smart.
1: Gattaca, Gattaca, good movie <laughs> about that. Uh, I always like those sort of you know you know it's a deep thinker, uh, futuristic you know dystopia movie when it's about bioethics. <laughs> that, that, that's your number one warning. Nothing like a good futuristic bioethics
0: sci-fi if if the trailer has someone screaming you're playing god then you
1: know you've crossed the line yes. indeed indeed <laughs> um oh so uh, you know while we're on the topic of, of germs this was really cool i read this today uh really fantastic so um what's what's the best way to to kill germs bleach or heat yeah bleach so We've been using bleach for a long, long time. I mean, no one really knows quite how long it's been being used, but it took until 2008 until we figured out how it works. Well, we didn't know how it works. Recent. Yeah. This is, you know, within, you know, a- around six years of recording. I don't have the month here, but so, University of Michigan, led by uh, molecular biologist Dr. Ursula Jacob. Demonstrated that bleach cooks the protein inside bacteria, uh, sort of like uh, heat cooking an, the protein in an egg white causes a chemical change um, and changes the molecular structure, transforms it uh, in a way that's irreversible without you know dr- you know dramatic chemical intervention uh, and the bacteria die.: Interesting. Isn't that crazy? That so is crazy. Cooking stuff kills things. Bleach kills things. Bleach does it because it cooks the proteins in the bacteria. How wild is that? Bleach is fucking cool. Uh, it's one of those things nobody knows a lot
0: about bleach. Um you're right. We've been we've been using it for a really long time. And no one knows no one really knows how it came about. Uh we have evidence that in prehistoric times human beings used the sun to bleach certain things um they were exposing uh things like cloth uh some textile works to the sun in order to bleach color out of them but the oldest <clears throat> use of liquid bleach or distilled bleach uh actually hits around 5000 BC with the Egyptians um hmm. yeah that's uh and I'm just I'm kind of pulling this right now from and who knows how legit this is right it's a hub page. It's one of the only serious historical views of bleach that I was able to find online. <clears throat> That's very interesting. And uh, it looks like as a byproduct of creating hydrogen peroxide is when bleach is a manufacturing product started to come around. Um, gavel in France made the Eau de Gavel, which, of course, means water of gavel um, potash solution. And water combined, um, and I guess the, the potash would raise the pH just enough to uh, to get that super basic bleach quality. That's interesting. That's really interesting.
1: Uh, potash, by the way, which is uh, it's, uh, salt. Yeah, just salt. mine from the earth. Uh, sort of copper-colored, a little marbly-looking. Uh, contains potassium uh, in a way that is water-soluble. Which is weird because potassium is famously uh, violent when reacting with water. It's what what an interesting thing.
0: This is one of those bits of history I wish I could sit in on, right? Because you know, the just for the time period we're in Central Europe here, we've got to be talking about lie. We've got to be talking about the beginning of soap and detergent as we understand them. Um,
1: Antiseptics. It, 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 yeah. yeah,
0: it all it all came together. It was one of those right place, right time things. When all of a sudden we've got this caustic byproduct chemical that, like, uh, uh, to your to your credit, right, potash salting the earth. If you've heard the term, like the scorched earth term, means to completely decimate the land so that crops could never grow there again, and it would be an act of war that you <clears> would take on a community or a country far enough away that you wanted to raise their lands and make rebuilding very difficult. That practice was yeah. was spreading potash on the soil and then letting the rain soak even, it even in and back into the, the
1: soil. uh Back in the uh, the Old Testament, there recorded um, after battles in and certain cities being decimated and destroyed, they would take uh, pieces of the uh, city wall and they would break them up and strew them all through the. The um, crops. Which chances are
0: good that was either salt slab or limestone. Right. Yep. So that's, I guess, uh, another one of those interesting tie togethers. Um, That is certainly where the phrase salting the earth comes from. Uh, What a neat thing. We We should do our research or challenge anybody. If you know, if you're listening and you know a lot about bleach, fucking teach us something. Excuse me. Teach us something. Yeah. We're trying to clean up the show. I know we've got a lot of young listeners. Uh, there's at least two different grade school classes that listen to our show instead of having a science class. So, excuse my potty mouth. We'll try to clean it up.
1: Let, let me correct. Let me correct, Beaker. Uh, fucking learn us something. Thank let you. Fucking learn us something. Um, <laughs> so I have a, a nice little follow up on bleach. Um, so bleach is one of those I always like. Uh, you know, words that have. Sort of two directions they're in, trying to figure out which one came first. We talked about uh, whether the color orange or the fruit the orange came first, uh, which interestingly it was the fruit, even though the fruit is is typically of green skin. Um, with bleach, what do you think came first? Bleach meaning uh, like the liquid that we refer to as bleach or bleach meaning like what – bleach does to something I believe, in as in
0: I believe it it's rooted in the fading of colors from textiles and I believe that to be true. If what we read about the history of bleach is correct, then the process of bleaching existed and was called bleaching several thousand years prior to the manufacture of bleach as a commercial chemical.
1: Yeah. And this is contrary to what I thought. I figured bleach the noun would be first. Um so uh the the bleach as as in a bleaching agent uh was first used we have the first citation of it uh written down not until 1898 which is crazy um whereas we have uh you know in in middle you know middle late modern english uh we have the act of bleaching 1887 so i so that is modern English at that point. Um, so just a few, you know, a little over a decade at that point in English. Um, looks like it comes from the Old English. Uh, blishan Proto-Germanic, Blacksian, to make white. And then we got cognates coming from Old Saxon, Blech. Old Norse, Blecher. Dutch, Blech. Old High Germanic, "blei," German, Blech which means pale, Norse, Dutch. So it's one of those uh proto-Indo-European new uh roots of bell, which means to shine, flash or burn. Yeah, I, uh, I would
0: assume that's right. That's why I think that's why I think the the noun came second. Um <clears throat> I, I I would yeah. back it up by saying bleach, you know, bleach as we know it now is actually hydrogen peroxide. Um it's it's not the salt combination that it was when bleach was first created. So I I think I think bleach the product has probably evolved to fit the common nomenclature.
1: Hmm. Um, So I'm not sure on that one. I didn't know bleach and hydrogen peroxide were the same thing. I believe household. I don't know if that's true. Household bleach.
0: Uh, I can say this factually household bleach is a five percent solution of
1: of chlorine
0: and hydrogen peroxide.
1: Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, the Wikipedia – I'm not checking the sources at this point, but it says refers to a number of chemicals which remove color, whiten, or disinfect. Um, often by oxidation. Ooh, no citation. I'm going to have to go ahead and update that with the cooking link that I have. <laughs> um, bleaching process been known by millennia. Chlorine is typically the uh, basis. And then the hydrogen peroxide. is. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that. Um yeah, uh, so I, I mentioned Proto Indo European. By the way, uh, we're we're gonna get into linguistics every once in a while on this podcast. So I should mention, uh, in case anyone hasn't heard that. You, I mean, you don't really hear references to uh, Proto Indo European if you ever use Etym Online, great online etymology dictionary. You'll see it just notated as PIE. You know, uh, the word PIE, but uh, Proto Indo European is the name we have for a language that we only know about by deduction um there are so we we don't have any written records of proto-european we have no record of it ever existing we have nothing written in proto-european proto-indo-european uh what we do have are german saxon norse dutch um indian sanskrit Greek, Latin, uh ch- Old Church Slavonic, Lithuanian that all have a a common roots. They they all have, you know, for instance, the, we were just going through the word bleach, all have a similar formation. They they're all sort of cognates. Uh Old Church
0: Slovak uh, is what we speak at the holidays here here at the <laughs> Beaker house. Yes.
1: Yeah. So what we're able to determine is that they all come, there is a base language that all of these languages derived from, you know, there is a common ancestor from them, you know, sort of like finding uh, common genetics in, you know, all of the, you know, any one of a number of people from a certain area of the world that are of a certain ancestry. We know they have a, a common ancestor, essentially. Um and so Proto-Indo-European is that language that we only sort of see the the shadow of. Um and uh one of the one of my favorite linguists lately, John McWhorter, uh he's got some great free lectures online, YouTube videos. Um one of the very few interesting things that the, the whole TED franchise has is Ted Ed, some of their little animated educational videos and John McWhorter's videos are fantastic. I usually give the whole TED industry a, a lot of shit cuz it's uh it's uh, it's upworthy for the NPR crowd as I like to say. <laughs> 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 and there there's a lot of bullshit and conjecture touted as uh, em, imperial science and there empirical science and and there is a disturbing number of beatboxers That give TED Talks. I don't know why. There are more beatboxers that have given TED Talks than beatboxers I knew existed. And I was super fucking into beatboxers in high school.
0: That's uh, I'm flabbergasted. That's a fun fact.
1: Yeah. It's. Yeah. But yeah, Proto-Indo-European, man. It's way cool. Uh, We might. No, we'll save that for a linguistics episode john McWhorter and all that stuff but yeah tangents uh talking about some interesting old uh terminology and linguistics and all that um so here here are some interesting things that all of our bodies have uh probably probably my two favorite body part names uh oh i'm blanking on one of them uh
0: must not that not, must not be that good.
1: Oh, here we go. So, uh one of them is the valves of Kirkring, <laughs> which is just fantastic. And uh then I I love this one, the end bulbs of Kraus. That How
0: great is that? What and what exactly is that part?
1: <laughs> so, uh the valves of kirkring uh are also known as circular folds and they are uh essentially they're in the duodenum in the the gut in the small intestine and they're valvular flaps that sort of project into it and uh they sort of let mucus come into it <laughs> Those are the valves of Kirkring, that, and uh, the end bulbs of Kraus are great.
0: That, so uh, absolutely, I'd, my, the only one I'm familiar with enough to really enjoy would be the cockles of the rectum.
1: <laughs> that's that's good. It, it, what are it seems in, enlighten us as to the what the cockles of the rectum are. Well,
0: no, it's it's lazy and blue in comparison. What are Oh what in the hell are these poetic, extravagant names for body parts? Who came up with these? I don't know.
1: Uh I think Shakespeare probably came up with a few of them. Uh so the the end bulbs of, of Krause, by the way. Uh I, I believe the the original pronunciation though may be the n bulbs of Krause, which I love. That's uh also known as bulboid corpuscles. Of course they because are. because scientists are fucking prudes. Um, they're so they are thermoreceptors that sense cold. Essentially the end bulbs of Krause, uh, the end bulbs of Krause are they're little bumpy oval ovular bodies that s- are essentially determine when you get goosebumps. Amazing. They uh, it's it's hard to get uh, a lot of distinction but they may be the bumps of goosebumps they may be what causes and is actually the uh, sort of expanding agent that forms the bump under the skin at the base of the hair follicles so, so do
0: these do these little things swell with fluid uh, do they
1: have, you've got me intrigued so uh, here, here's what I've got on the, uh, the write up uh, they're minute cylindrical or oval bodies consisting of a capsule formed by the expansion of the connective tissue sheath of the, med- the medulated fiber. This is this is getting way over my head. And containing a soft semi-fluid core, which has the axis cylinder, w- in which the axis cylinder terminates either in a bulbous extremity or a coiled up plexiform mass.
0: Ugh. A coiled up plexiform mass. So if if we just break down the words that you used in the order that you used them, we know that these could be round or ovate. They may be fluid filled or they could be compressed like a wound hair. In either case, when excited, they may or may not expand or contract causing the contents of the liquid or not liquid, hair like or non-hair like core to rise up.
1: Yes. That now they're not <laughs> That's the most all ambiguous statement body.
0: in the history of anything.
1: They're, they're not all over your entire body. Um, you know the little pink bump in the corner of your eye?
0: I love that little pink bump.
1: They're there <laughs> They're in the mucous membranes of your lips and tongue. Um, they're uh, in your synovial joints uh, in the fingers, certain uh, you know elbows. Um, they're also uh, in your in penis and in clitorises. And here's probably the the best the best part. Um, you know the little bumps on areolas. Yes, those are the end bulbs of Krause.
0: I'm not saying I have those bumps, but I'm familiar with them. Those are. <laughs> <laughs> Those are end bulbs, huh? Those are the end bulbs of Krause. So where, if I was going to examine human genitals, what would I be looking for if
1: I wanted to identify an end bulb of Krause? So if you want to f- identify specifically what are called the genital corpuscles, um, you're looking for little bumps that have a mulberry like appearance and may uh, alter... Or uh intensify in appearance when cold is sensed Hmm. the the end bulbs of Krause in a very real way are what cause shrinkage in a very real way that's amazing to me, and yeah it, they are
0: what sense coldness and react they sense coldness and react and th- this kind of bleeds into something I was hoping we would touch on uh. <laughs> the genitals.
1: You would hope you're hoping we would touch on genitals. You knew
0: I wanted to touch on the genitals, but the the end bulbs of <laughs> Krause they detect cold. They produce a physical reaction. Krause and I can't think of a better example for something that is also easily triggered by a psychosomatic response. Oh, L- but you can get goosebumps from a, mu- a moving piece of music, from drama that you see in some form of media you can get goosebumps from simple anticipation. You don't have to necessarily register cold for the end bulbs of Krause to rise to attention, right? It's, and this is one of the things about the human body and medicine and medicinal history that fascinates me the most. It's that almost every one of these physical representations that we try to identify the symptoms of and the causes of, they can also be triggered mentally and entirely mentally.
1: Right. So here here's here's the one of the most interesting things, things about this that I have thought about since I was a kid. You know, so these are thermoreceptors. Um, when I was a kid, I always used to wonder and I asked everyone and no one could ever tell me. Everyone would just give me an answer that was clearly just, you know, speculation is why when you have when you eat something minty, why does cold water feel way colder Afterward. Why does menthol have that effect? Right, and so I had broken it down in my little ten-year-old head. I was like, okay, so either it causes your pores to open and ex- and exposes, uh, you know, more sensitive skin and that feels that, uh, or it actually has some chemical reaction that causes the water to become colder. You know, th- this is what I had broken it down to. It's got to be one of these two. I finally, thanks to Ask Science on Reddit, r slash uh, Ask Science, I was able to learn this. They posted up uh, a real cool graphic of how, thir- or rather, how cell receptors work. Cell receptors are one of these things that I've heard talked about all the time, and I've never really understood. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, that that accesses your cell receptor four, cell receptor six on these cells on your you know your <laughs> your your general corpuscles or whatever and it never really quite made sense but so so here's the thing certain certain cell receptors certain receptors on sensory cells when activated trigger certain reactions in our body some of those cell receptors cell receptors Um, are thermoreceptors. So essentially, when those cell receptors are triggered, they trigger us to sense a certain temperature. And so there are about five of these in a row on certain cells. And so when they are activated in different ratios, we're able to sense the feelings we feel of different temperatures of, say, water or soup. When, you know, by how much of each receptor is being activated by either heat or by a chemical. It just so happens that the chemical the chemical of menthol, the, this minty oil, this flavor that we taste as mint, activates our cold thermoreceptor cell receptors. TRPM8.
0: Is uh, yeah. is the chemical in question? It's a it's a protein called the transient receptor potential cation channel subfamily M member eight, uh, the one that we're most familiar with in things like mint gum and peppermint candy.
1: I must have been talking for a long time. If you got that much research, there. i I've, I've caught up. <laughs> I've
0: caught up pretty quick, and I find it absolutely fascinating. It's the same exact, and the words are actually used in the identifier for this protein. It's the same effect, uh, same in fact effect that you get from, uh, input and receptor confusion brought on by psychotropic drugs. Um, that's fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. It's the overwhelming signal surge and it's based on chemical locks that identify themselves in the protein or, uh, in some, in some cases, the saccharide or sugar structure of the compound that's introduced into your mouth. Um, Mint and peppermint oils uh, respond like other cooling agents listed, eucalyptol, isillin. They also are directly related to capsicum and the things in peppers that make your mouth feel extra hot.
1: Yeah, that's a really cool thing. The original uh, Ask Science post I saw was referring to uh, capsaicin, as we pronounce it in the Northwest. Um, It's The capsaicin actually activates heat thermo cell receptors. It's not simply a, a, you know, I mean, it may be more widely known. Spicy is not a, is not technically a taste. It's actually a, a touch sensation. Um, a lot of people just think, it, oh, it's pain. It's specifically, it's a, a sensation of heat. So peppers, heat peppers typically... don't
0: taste hot. They actually are hot. For all well, intents and purposes. Well, they have, have a purposes. chemical,
1: they have a chemical that, that mimics... That activates the exact same cell receptor that triggers the exact same biological sensation as something hot enough to burn you would. Which is why it feels alarming if you're not expecting it. You know, as kids, the first time they have something really spicy, it feels harmful, but it's not. It feels like, you know, I mean, when you, when you put it on your tongue, it feels like something that should cause your skin to be damaged. It should cause some sort of burn. That 's because it activates the same cell receptors that sense the heat that would cause that burn
0: and fire that signal off so that same confusion happens with mint the electrical charge within the neuron and the information that gets sent up through the nervous system is overflooded, so the presence of that doesn't necessarily have to be there for the receptor to fire off
1: um, exactly so there's our- there, there can be a sensory a, a sensory trigger as well as chemical triggers and in a very Interesting way. I'm just now realizing, uh, um, mint and 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 uh, sort of spicy, you know, capsaicin and menthol are just two things on the on different ends of the exact same spectrum. Yep,
0: they're different ends of the same saccharide chain, uh, and which is weird. It, they don't they don't quite feel like opposites, you know. No, they they don't quite
1: feel like the same thing.
0: They certainly don't. But organic chemistry is one of those things that's constantly surprising. Um absolutely I would like to see this be our Chadley challenge of the week.
1: Oh no. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no. I w- Are you making segments without me? Let's do science. I would like somebody to
0: brush their teeth and then eat a jalapeno pepper. Hmm. I wanna I wanna know what happens besides horrendous acid reflux.
1: Alternately, I would like someone to eat a jalapeno pepper and then brush their teeth while it's still really, really spicy. See if, does it counteract it, uh, or does it just compound on the, the sensory input?
0: See, you're taking it from a different angle. Um, I, yeah. For some reason, the order seems like it would be important to me.
1: Uh, yeah, you, flood, so I
0: want to I know what happens with both. Interesting. So flood the mouth with cold, and then introduce something that should register as hot. Then flood the mouth with hot, and introduce something that should register as cold. And let us know what you find. Um, I think In we're willing to take video the, submissions for this as well. Oh yeah, if
1: you do this, we'll post your video up on the page.
0: Do we have a prize? Absolutely. Do we have a prize to give away. I have a Nerdcore Meow podcast coffee mug. Lightly used. Uh first person to send us a video, I will mail this Lightly to your home. Lightly
1: used. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh. Boy. Yeah, uh so, let's uh since we're sort of switching gears, I'm also I'm gonna also do a a new segment. Oh shit! Yeah. So uh, I hate to break it to you, but something you like is probably racist. Um, so much so of the things you probably like that we're we're starting an entire segment about it. Chances so
0: chances are everything you like is racist in one way or another.
1: I don't know about you, Beaker, but this week, I, you know, after talking about all them delicious exotic fruits, I got to hankering for some delicious exotic fruits. And it just so happened to be uh, persimmon season, which is my favorite fucking fruit in the world. Persimmons Persimmons are so nice. Oh, so I had a delicious persimmon. I got another one sitting on my hotel desk. I had a dragon fruit last week and it was so delicious. And... I am currently drinking um some bullet bourbon over ice with a healthy dozen or so dashes of angostura orange bitters. What are you drinking tonight, sir? I'm
0: drinking a rusty nail. Nice. Uh, out of a pint glass. Um heavy on the ice. Um it's kind of it's a little less than half, so it's pretty well watered down and mixed at this point.
1: I'm drinking out of a shitty plastic hotel water
0: glass i've got uh an asteroids atari uh 16 ounce tumbler here and for those of you that don't nice. know this is a great uh, drink it'll put hair on your nuts for sure um half doers half drambuie. try to layer them at first let them mix as you sip um
1: drambuie is nice man this is like a, a like slick
0: drambuie. black licorice warms your gut kind of thing perfect for the weather that we're having pretty much every yeah, i'm a fan moment. of the
1: rusty nail I like, I like any excuse to use sort of a, an herbal liqueur in anything. Well, a recipe so, wasn't uh, bad. So let's talk about shit y'all didn't realize was racist. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. So let me just break down this segment. There's a whole lot of stuff that was mad racist when it came out. But also, like, brilliant and genius. And so we sort of, like... Tried to smooth over the racist parts and kept it. And that's a lot of what we're talking about in this segment. So first up, we're going to talk about The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Fantastic book. It's very Fantastic classic. Fantastic story idea. The, the duality of man. The duality
0: of man. You, you took the words right out of my mouth, you son of a bitch. Oh. The duality of yeah. man and the constant conflict with the
1: self. Absolutely. I don't know uh, if they were contemporaries. One of them came first or second. But I feel like... Um, Alright, Gregor Samsa. I remember the dude's name, but not the book. The Metamorphosis. Thank you. Uh, so, Kafka's The Metamorphosis. I feel like that and uh, the strange case, strange case of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are sort of kindred spirits in book form. You know, one of them talks about... You know, a, a permanent change from being one person to another person, you know, that feels not even human. Whereas uh, the Jekyll and Hyde story is about uh, sort of that daily, you know, uh, swing between the, the dualities we have within ourselves. Um, here's the thing, though. It was racist as shit. It, um, it was
0: incredibly racist. It, not a lot of people have access to first editions um, in the age of the internet. Yeah. That is no excuse.
1: Yeah. So the original concept, like when I say original, I don't mean like this was the rough draft and you know, Stevenson was like, Oh, Hey, maybe I should change this. Cause it's, it's kind of a dick way to tell this story. Like, the the way this story came out and was published and became a classic was some white doctor drinks a potion and turns into a scary black guy
0: a frightening large brutish black guy
1: yeah so a lot of this is uh it's mostly implicit and weirdly enough um it was changed it was changed later to um more of an irish stereotype so as to be a little less racist i uh, from from what i recall i think uh stevenson was this was published around the time uh abolition and william wilberforce and all that was going down in um england and the us yeah 1866 so this is all around the same time as uh the uh abolition and sort of the first pings of uh the modern civil rights movement but uh let me just let me just read you a little excerpt from the original transformation scene scene uh that first happens in this book uh this is speaking of of dr jekyll here he put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp a cry followed He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table, and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth. And as he looked, there came, I thought, a change. He seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black, and the features seemed to melt and alter, and... At the next moment, I had sprung to my feet and leaped back against the wall, my arm raised to shield me from that prodigy, my mind submerged in terror. Oh, God, I screamed. Oh, God, again and again, for there before my eyes was a black dude. Yeah, that's racist as shit.
0: That, uh, (laughs) bravo, um... And yes, it's it's exceptionally racist. Um, and when you think about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's one example of a literary classic that has had very little to fix it over the years. It still remains uh, a focal point in our education. Um, I, just, I, I don't know how to come to terms with things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I know the next one on your list already, I'm going to guess, uh, Oompa Loompas.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll save that for the next time. Oh. We'll see if anyone can find out quite what's going on with that one before we get to it. But yeah, um, so yeah, here here's the thing. It seems like the original uh, sort of wrinkles and imperfections, and I mean, I don't want to minimize how fucking awful this is, but you know, there. I I want to I want to you know, just speak of them as details, you know, but by details, I mean the meat of this, you know, the thing that makes a story amazing are the words, the way the sentences are structured. And so actually, absolutely every single part is, is utterly important, including this awfulness that's part of it. But that all just gets so smoothed over when something becomes in the case of Willy Wonka, a movie, which uh, for all intents and purposes, has, has all but replaced the book in, in the cultural consciousness. I mean, uh, you know, there there's no question more people have seen Willy Wonka movies than have read the book. You know, when when people think Willy Wonka, they think Gene Wilder or to a lesser extent Johnny Depp. Uh, they don't think of, you know, the, the child of a dentist who's rebelling against his father as told in Roald Dahl's book. You know, when people think of uh dr jekyll and mr hyde they don't think of the book they think of the trope it, it's it hasn't even become a movie that everyone's seen it's become a, a trope that's used in cartoons in television shows in other books it's repeated in simpsons episodes you know th- this trope of someone who has a mild-mannered dude who drinks a potion and becomes a monster you know, it has become, you know, it, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is one of my favorite comics. Uh, I love the film, too. I know the film gets a lot of hate. I fucking loved it. Uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll's one of the characters in that. And he turns into Hyde and Hyde is some, you know, Cockney roused about. And it's really cool. And it sort of, you know, redeems it. But yeah, that whole idea of turning into a monster, that was a white guy turning into a black guy. Uh, and that's racist as shit. Absolutely so. racist. Yeah. Uh, You'll be surprised. Uh, a lot of things you like are probably racist. Probably racist. And so I, I got we're going to be devoting you. a segment to that.
0: I've, I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a surprise you're racist for you, and I think it fits in the modern era. Uh, Is
1: it – do we want to save it or do we want to use it for the human body episode?
0: It, it's about the human body.
1: Dude, let's do it. Double dose. A double dose. You got a double shot on our first, uh, something you like is probably racist. Second. A, a double dose of, haha, you're racist,
0: the beard. I'll let it sink in for a second. The beard. Every hipster kid I know has got a well groomed and, in many cases, articulated and manicured beard. And the practice, uh, which did not originate in Europe as we know it today, actually originated right before the Revolution and Emancipation Proclamation in the Civil War. Um, without Wait, the
1: practice of of having facial hair. The practice of having
0: heavily groomed facial hair. It was, it was a, Ah. it was a crossover. It was done in Europe, uh, fancy mustaches, lots of curls and stuff, much older than our revolutionary history. But the practice here in America translated from our European roots, but it wasn't in the way that we did it in Europe. Barbers were still highly sought after. They were considered to be highly skilled and respected members of the community. But here in America, it was the job given to slaves Um, Right after the Emancipation Proclamation, right after the Revolution had occurred, one of the most sought-after jobs for black men, especially in southern states, was to work as a professional barber because these are guys that were brought up as valets, manservants, private barbers for the the families that they, quote-unquote, worked for— And as the profession grew and the trend grew, it became almost a competitive marketplace to have finely detailed and finely groomed beards. And it was a testament to how good your boy back at the barbershop could do it. Um, the found- Yikes! The foundation of our American sportsmanship with beards is rooted directly in the free slaves movement and their presence as high-profile barbers in the south so there you go hipster kids with uh your turntable walkmans and your fuel efficient cars that beard you're waxing every morning is kind of like that confederate flag your neighbor in the trailer park hangs outside under their window they don't mean it to be racist Yikes. it's just a part of their culture but by god the roots are still there
1: wowzers i uh i'm thinking twice about the mustache wax in my shaving kit it,
0: isn't that a thing isn't that an amazing thing to think of go ahead and do your research um this is one of those things you'll be able to read about for a, a long period of time and the evidence is overwhelmingly supportive um
1: Yowza. Yeah. that's uh that's disturbing yeah so the the entire the entire sort of cultural phenomenon in america of having very ornate beards and, and sort of well-groomed, fashionable... The idea of the fashionable beard. The idea of the it fashionable beard is... Was entirely stems from the subjugation of of uh, black Americans. Of,
0: of black America, yeah, pre-revolution. So, there you go. That, that That's fun. I like this segment a lot. I think we're going to have some great material for Surprise, You're Racist.
1: <laughs> Wowzers. Yeah, man. That's... Uh, Man, we're, we're personal growth here. We're, uh, I need to drink my bourbon there. <laughs> Gotta to, got to take a sip and consider,
0: <laughs> consider the information yeah. I just dropped on you.
1: Yeah. Hey, something I like is racist today. You know, maybe I won't rewatch that first season of Whisker Wars.
0: <laughs> maybe I won't rewatch any Disney film ever.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely get to that. (laughs) That,
0: Disney gets his own entire show. We could go on for hours about Walt.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, So, (coughs) excuse me. Let's talk about some things. Uh, Here is a question. Um, What does the size of a man's foot tell you about that man, Beaker?
0: Uh, What size shoe he wears
1: and Little Else. Uh, I hate to break it to you. Doesn't even tell you that. Uh, most people don't know how big their own feet are, and don't wear the correct shoe size. Really? Yeah. Uh, so according to David G. Armstrong, uh, he's a professor of surgery at William M. Scholl College of Podiatric Medicine. Uh, that's, where yeah, brother, podiatric. My, that's where my brother. Podiatric. That's where
0: my brother became a podiatrist. Nice in the, Chicago. The Scholl School your, your, of Medicine.
1: Yep. Your hometown. Uh, three quarters of people wear the wrong sized shoes. Yeah. So uh, he he uh, he guesses that he, he has conjecture that this may be that they stick to a size they were measured for when young, fail to realize that feet change shape throughout your life, um, maybe that they like to get value and <laughs> out of their shoes and keep re-wearing the same pair of shoes even if they don't fit. Um, but yeah, so, uh, check your, check your shoe size, you know, next time I always, I, I always go into a, a shoe store, assuming I'm not sure what size my feet are just, I mean, cause it varies from brand to brand, but the, the nice thing is that it gets me to try, you know, maybe I'm a 10 and a half now, you know, and occasionally I am. So, but, uh, I mean, here's the obvious place we're going with it, uh, The size of, uh, well, here, let's just put it this way. A study in 2002 published in uh, a journal called the British Journal of Urology International scientifically, finally, I mean, I'm glad someone did it, finally scientifically proved there is no link between uh, foot size and penis size. Uh, So here's the methodology is my favorite part. Uh, And this just gets better. It gets better as this sentence goes on. Uh, Nurses (laughs) at St. Mary's Hospital and University College Hospital in London measured the foot size and penis length of 104 men. Now, here's the important part. In each case, the penis was, and this is a direct quote from the study, gently stretched before it was measured <laughs> but no correlation was found
0: gently stretched so we we even tugged on it y'all and your yeah, dick is the, still smaller than your foot
1: the the most probably the most uh, alarming part uh, of the of the the phrase gently stretched is i know exactly what they mean <laughs>
0: I, th- I, I just gave myself a gentle stretch to see if I could get on par. And I think I know where they're coming from.
1: <laughs> the thing is, that sounds like that sounds like some <laughs> some dude who is like trying to like get himself some extra inches. Like you, you measure from the you measure from the base, right? They're like, you know, you, you got to give yourself like a gentle stretch before you measure, right? Well, I, I'm you, kind yeah.
0: of a chubby guy, so I like to set the ruler in just about three or four centimeters to make up for pudge. <laughs> yeah, yeah you,
1: you know, you got you, <laughs> to, like, you know, it's like that guy uh, who's always trying to, on sitcoms or whatever, who's always trying to make excuses about, you know, like, well, you, you got to measure it right, you know. It's cold in here. you know He's, Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was great. Uh, performed by by hospital personnel. So, sir, we're yeah. we're gonna just
0: give this a gentle stretch. Yeah. Uh, to be uh, to so. Here's orderly. the best
1: part. Here's the best part. Uh, there were previous studies that seemed to indicate a mild link between the two. Um. <laughs> the the problem with these studies is that the methodology was asking men how long their penises were and just writing down what they said.
0: Oh, well, absolutely. It's it's huge.
1: <laughs> yes. Don't just oh, look at it. Penis? Give it a gentle stretch. Yes. 17.34 inches. I'm glad you asked. <laughs>
0: what? Well, <laughs> not, I don't understand. You're not looking at it from the right Ooh. angle. Get the nurse over here to give me a, a gentle stretch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh there you know we go. I could tell you, but uh <laughs> if, if I get a hand. Uh yeah, the
0: never short on laughs, never short on insightful factual data. Um the actual penis size studies that go around never fail to make me feel better about myself. Um they're just not that big anywhere.
1: Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I'm convinced, uh, and this has been sort of a, a running conversation. Uh, you know, it was in the early days of the Loveline radio show, Adam Carolla, Dr. Drupinski, that it seems like all of these penis-length studies seem to be gradually shortening the average length of the penis, and they all... Seem to be sort of undershooting it intentionally. I'm not sure quite how reliable these studies are. Uh, Apparently, as of about 2012, um, allegedly the average Caucasian man's penis is 3.5 inches long when flaccid. That seems reasonable. 5.1 inches long, excuse me, when erect. That seems intentionally Short. undershot a bit. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, they
0: obviously weren't looking at ours.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. But I mean, that's
0: the thing about penis lore, right? Like, and we could we can save this for another show too, and feminism and masculinity and all that other shit. But the dicks are like shiny Pokemon, you know, like. The only people that care, the dude's I'm, I'm I just want to revel. On them.
1: I just want to revel in this moment before I know what you mean by that. Give me a moment, <laughs> okay? It's the dicks are like shiny Pokemon
0: Oh all, all the dudes fighting over who's got the best one, and none of the women give a shit. Yeah, <laughs> none of ain't that the truth. No, Nobody after your dick uh cares, I don't think. Um, Seinfeld said it best when they said the male body is simply utilitarian it's like a jeep it, you know, yeah. as long as it runs and gets the job done then good enough but again that could be all part of misogyny right i could just be embracing the fact that men are supposed to be fat slobs and don't care
1: well i think it's more uh i mean that's definitely you know an overcorrection for that but yeah i mean this you know this obsession males have with male genitalia is just I don't know. It's weird, disturbing, and obviously, it, it, you know, it comes from a place of some sort of innate insecurity or evolutionary, just you know, need to assert some sort of meaningless dominance. You know, if you know, if, if anyone doubts we still have any sort of animalistic instincts. Walk down the streets of any city in the U.S. and just hold direct eye contact with a man.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: See what see what happens. Absolutely. <laughs> just just make eye contact with a man. See what
0: happens. Absolutely. It's and I I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's animalistic. Um, I, I don't know if it's like a core instinct or a drive or if it's that we've got to you know procreate and spread seed or whatever. All I know is that the only people that care about dicks are are people with dicks yeah and it 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 doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me but uh not a lot does nowadays truth 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 shiny uh, shiny penis uh
1: so you know we're talking a little bit about evolution natural selection uh survival of the fittest as it were um what what did human beings evolve from?
0: What did human beings evolve from? Yeah. Aliens. <laughs> oh galactic panspermia. Ab- absolutely. Like with the, without a doubt, the and I've said it before, man, I don't understand. I absolutely don't understand how evolution and mutation of the body system could result in respirating plants to vertebrae to mammals. It doesn't make any well, fucking he- sense. Where did mushrooms come from? What in the hell is a respiratory system for
1: fuck's sake? Here's here's the issue with galactic panspermia though. It doesn't solve the problem, it just pushes the problem back. So humans evolved from aliens, what did the aliens evolve from? It's
0: it's an impossible question, man. Like <laughs> the the only reasonable answer I've ever heard was we're made in God's image and that's uh, It's such, it's not a satisfying answer, right? Like we're, we're very similar to a lot of other mammals, our genetic makeup, our DNA, the, the structure that makes us self-aware living beings is not at all different. I mean, I'm not even talking substantial difference. I mean, it's substantially similar to literally, to literally everything else. The, the jump off point, I don't get, this is my reason for having no faith in, uh, in creative or intelligent design being that there's nothing intelligent about the system as it's designed right now i i don't that's one of those things i have absolutely no fathomable understanding at what point in the primordial soup right what was the crucible that pushed the circulatory system and the respiratory system into effect it, Very interesting. It's incredibly interesting. The, the step for me, it's not even the missing link, it's before that. It's the salamander that got out and walked on dry land, right? Like, if evolution is supposed to fit or satisfy an outlying need of the species, what drove the gills to turn into respirators to turn into lungs? That makes no fucking sense to me.
1: Right. Well, that's the thing. It's not about drive. You know, I mean, you know, depending on where you're coming from, I'm a theist. I, you know, I, I fully embrace the theory of evolution. Uh, I'll admit, I might get some shit for this. I, I think it's a little overstepping for, uh, for natural selection to assert to be the origin, you know, proper of species as a whole. Um, but it's very, very clear that evolution is happening, does happen, has happened, is how, you know... M- Most of, you know, this shit that we call life, you know, came about. I mean, that's undisputable. Um, You know, the intricacies are, you know, just more things we're trying to figure out. Well, I think Um, taking evolution... And I I, 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 I do want to clarify, I, as much as the next guy, hate, you know, when people try to, you know, replace scientific investigation by saying God did it. It's like, well, yeah. Isn't the whole fucking idea of science to figure out
0: how? Absolutely, how. And I mean, as
1: a theist, that's how I view science. Well, you know? not only
0: that, but that's now how the Catholics view science, right? It's it's, it's embraced globally. Um, the the Buddhists were some of the original. Yes, of course, there's a creator that created the natural laws that we follow. That was the foundation. Uh, the Pope just recently, and you know, if the Pope says it, it's fucking law, right? So the, the Pope said, yeah, God's not a fucking magician. He created the structure in which everything exists. Uh, and I, I can get that, right? I think it's highly, it's, it's much more likely or at least much more plausible that everything is a simulation running with set limitations that are recognizable by the defined expanding and contracting limits of the
1: universe, and things. That, Ooh, be careful, because you're getting dangerously close to a future dubious theory.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I know it. it we'll will hit that dubious theory. It's But it comes to my point about evolution in the context we're talking about. I think it does a disservice to the argument, because to, to, well, to make it so, well, so he, narcissistic, so, right? Like the point here's of evolution the was life itself, I don't think is true. It's all the outcome, it's the sum parts of a bigger total that had literally nothing to do with life as
1: we understand it. Right. So, so getting a little more philosophical than usual. Obviously, even what life is or means is something that we, you know, as humans don't even begin to quite understand. You know, what, you know, what makes something biological, organic versus inorganic, I mean, you know, we just have no clue. Absolutely You know, it seems to be a lot uh, of descriptive definition rather than sort of prescriptive, able to be used for predictive things. Whereas natural selection itself is able to be used predictively. You know, we've been able to, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but look up um, the damn interesting article on naked mole rats, because it is fascinating and mildly related to what we're talking about. Um, that said, uh, I was getting at the idea that most people think humans evolved from apes or monkeys, which is not the case. Not the so, case at all. <laughs> yeah. People have this tendency to try to simplify everything. Um, people can't, we, you know, we just incessantly try to dumb everything down. We want everything to be a dichotomy. We want everything to be in simple categories and fit into prescribed boxes that make sense. And that's not how it works. Um, So every single species, absolutely every living thing that exists currently is a completely modern species. Apes are completely modern. Chimpanzees are thoroughly modern animals. Monkeys are completely modern animals. They have evolved alongside of Homo sapiens. Um, both Homo sapiens, uh, the the scientific term, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, and apes evolved from a common ancestor is what we, you know, our are, are current best uh Not hypothesis, but theory, the currently most supported um, scientific conjecture based on the evidence we have, which seems to be pretty darn good, uh, is that uh, this common ancestor uh, haven't found direct evidence yet, but uh, seemed to live on the Pliocene era about five million years ago. Descended from squirrel-like tree shrew, tree shrews, uh, which in turn evolved from sort of ancient versions of hedgehogs, which turned out to be from sort of ancient versions of starfish. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of these steps. And the further back we go, it just gets into sort of uh, evidentiary conjecture. We have bases for these being. The best guesses, as far as our specific line, um, are actual genetic makeup, but it sort of um, assumes the, uh, you know, it sort of takes into account the unlikeliness of parallel evolution, the unlikeliness that, you know, whatever the origin of starfish are, that they may have happened to coincidentally... Uh, you know, come along the same sort of mutative path as we had to that point. Um, And so at this point, until we have better evidence, we assume that that common aspect of our genetics is not just something that needs to happen for things like starfish and things like humans to exist, but that it means that we had that same, uh, a genetic ancestor that we share in common. Um. So here's here's what I have here uh the latest comparison of genomes of humans and our closest relative the chimpanzee shows that we split much later than we previously assumed much so this yeah, means I knew that, that
0: much we, much later
1: yeah and uh this has come out a little bit early, uh, a little bit earlier in the year but this means we quite pro- possibly interbred to produce unrecorded and now extinct hybrid species before the sort of final separation of species to where we can no longer breed about 5.4 million years ago um, from what we can best determine. Um, so here's the interesting thing about this. Um, the distinction of species is, I mean, I don't want to say largely arbitrary, (laughs) but, uh, it's, I mean, it's, about three steps away from there's no such thing as a species. Um, species is <laughs> a lot more, much, you know, much like, you know, what we were saying earlier. Species is a, a much more descriptive term than prescriptive. It's much more, we use it to describe certain things, and we're finding more and more that in the reality of natural selection, as every species on earth, evolves and grows and changes over time we don't quite have there is no point at which species sort of click over from one species to to another it's a a continuous you know con- contiguous as well a uh, gradual shift that changes and doesn't have any sort of firm transition points where things just click over because it's so gradual. This is why it takes millions and millions and millions of years. And so, um, you know, we, this leads to things like every single breed of dog is the same species. And, uh, kale, kohlrabi, broccoli, regular cabbage, red cabbage, broccolini, Chinese broccoli, and Brussels sprouts are all the exact same species and derive from a wild mustard plant that is also the exact same species. Um, you know, we <laughs> our our use of the 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 distinction of species is just not quite robust enough to capture what is precisely meant by species, and we're we're well absolutely. learning that and
0: The classifications as we know them and still use them. And even if we get to the Darwinian understanding of species and species separation, it's not founded on the same science that we understand today. There's a logical disconnect there.
1: Yeah. And so you get examples like, um, Things like domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, Uh, even to a larger extent genus, these, you know, these have much, much clearer distinctions. There's still a little bit of fuzz around the edge, but, you know, the categories, the, the issue we get is when you get to the most precise category, when all of the things you're classifying by their very nature intrinsically change over time into new species. You know. Whatever species we evolved from. Was a different species. And at what point did that species become. The species we are now. And cease to be the species we used to be. We have no idea. You know we we haven't even. We don't even have a, an idea of an idea. We have a general time frame. Where we think it might have happened. But. The thing that we're talking about as what might have happened, we don't even know what we're referring to. And so at this point, um, current currently, it's it, it shifts often, but the uh, Wikipedia says a species is often defined as the largest group of organisms capable of interbreeding and producing fertile offspring. Uh, while in many cases, this definition is inadequate. Totally inadequate. <laughs> the, yeah, the definition, uh, the, the difficulty of defining species is known as the species problem. <laughs> Differing <laughs> measures are often used, such as similarity of DNA, morphology, and eco- uh, ecological niche. Presence of specific locally adopted traits may further subdivide species into infraspecific taxa, such as subspecies. Um, and in botany, other taxa that are use varieties sub varieties forme uh, and breeds in animals so is a well known issue uh we 'll link to some some cool shit on the species problem on the uh, on the podcast page that is learn dot com uh, no g on the something because it 's something not something learn dot com that goes to our punch nerds page. Um, but yeah it 's uh it 's interesting stuff, man. We did not evolve from apes I like it a lot monkeys or... yeah <laughs> I, I like
0: it a lot it's it 's weird to think of where the where the actual separation could have occurred like I would love to see what was right in between the starfish and the hedgehog
1: right well that 's the thing it 's this gradual you know I mean, almost certainly imperceptible alterations, you know? I mean, it's one gene mutation at a time, except in very, very rare circumstances. Um, you know, I don't know. It's it's a weird thing to really get into the details and think about. It's one of those things that, you know, it's tempting to say we may never fully understand, but, I mean, there's just so much shit we've said that about in the past. You know, who knows? Who
0: knows? I'm overwhelmed with concerned thought now.
1: (laughs) I think this would be a good time for... uh, I've got a great quote from Stephen Fry about humans. You love Stephen Uh, Fry. uh, Stephen Fry is my spirit animal, dude. Stephen Fry and Hank Hill. (laughs) So uh, Stephen Fry uh, wrote... I love this quote, just sort of getting at the heart of the difference between animals and humans, you know, humans and other animals. Uh, He says, animals have this in common with one another. Unlike humans, they appear to spend every minute of every hour of every day of their lives being themselves. A tree frog, so far as we can ascertain, doesn't wake up in the morning feeling guilty that it was a bad tree frog the night before. Nor does it spend any time wishing it were a wallaby or a crane fly. It just gets on with the business of being a tree frog, a job it does supremely well. We humans, well, we are never content, always guilty, and rarely that good at being what nature asked us to be, homo sapiens.
0: My my brain exploded.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Dude, Stephen Fry. I think I might like Stephen Fry too so well.
0: I think I might be a Stephen Fry fanboy as well.
1: Yeah, that man. Oh, dude, I am. I am one professional degree of separation away from Stephen Fry. By the way, thanks to one Molly Lewis, known as uh, Sweet Afton, thirty-two or something, huh. on uh, on YouTube. Very, well, very good. Yes, we'll, we will definitely. Of yeah, we'll definitely link to her performing in person. Her 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 musical plea to allow Stephen Fry to uh, select her as a surrogate mother for his children. <laughs> we'll link that on the podcast page. Uh, here's a good question: Which which is hairier, human or chimpanzee?
0: Uh, I'm gonna say. And it only because of the huge amount of fine hairs that we have. I'm going to say human.
1: Well, so here's the thing. Obviously, seems like chimpan, chimpanzees are 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 hairier. Rather, uh, turns out we have roughly the same number of hair follicles, which is about five million. Right. Um, only, only five million. Yeah, only two percent of those, about a hundred thousand, are on our scalps. Um, the interesting thing is that our hair. Has evolved to be finer and more transparent than other uh, other primates. I am highly evolved um,
0: that way. You can't tell
1: I look like uh,
0: smooth smooth as a newborn baby.
1: <laughs> do you have that Danish skin like Billy the fridge?
0: I do. I have that Danish skin. Um, I'm a, I'm a natural blonde, as you well know. And, yes, and uh, I've got blonde body hair everywhere. You actually have to like get in close and look to see my arm hair, and then it, then it looks like I'm wearing a silver sweater of some kind.
1: That was. That was more than I wanted to know about your body hair, Baker.
0: It, it is true. And you know, for as I age, I get more and more of it on my balls oh. and on my ass,
1: but it's... need a need a large drink of whiskey for that one. there's so, things you can handle. Yeah. <laughs> no one no one seems to know why we lost our fur. Um so <laughs> I like the theories. Uh one theory is that it was to reduce lice. Hmm. Another is that when our ancestors moved out of the forests and onto the savanna, like you know, 1.7 or so million years ago, uh, we we st- we were overheating, and so only those of us that had like real thin light fur survived, and <laughs> because we were getting real hot in the sun. <laughs> uh, and then, but what we do seem to have figured out. Uh, it seems that as we became less hairy, we became darker skin to to protect our skin, to protect our skin from the sun. Um, and so, you know, obviously life seemed to have started uh, in sort of the horn of Africa, um, where people have much darker skin to protect them from the sun. Here's the weird thing, though, that seems to uh, poke a hole in that theory. Uh, the Inuit of the Arctic... Have way less body hair than many sub-Saharan Africans, so really, yeah. The So maybe it doesn't expect. have to do with the whole heat thing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think it's because um, when we were climbing out of the water, or probably when we were in the water, it has something to do with water and uh, hydrodynamia. Huh. That's maybe. That's my vote.
1: That's uh. That's a good thought. Uh, well, so one interesting thing uh, we do have about speaking of Eskimos and Inuit folks. Um, so the Inuit people, um, that's Inuit with a G, of Northern, uh, of, of Greenland rather, since we're talking about them, are the only... Culture that is ever known to have developed a knife culture prior to learning how to smelt metal. Hmm. Yeah. So here's the crazy thing. Um, there were three meteorites that landed on the ice in northern Greenland that understandably became the center point of their inu excuse me of their inuit religion and they were able to use rocks to chip flakes of metal off of these meteorites and then sort of fashion uh, bone handles around you know portions of the flakes they got off it and shape the flakes and use those as knives isn't that crazy? It is. It's very interesting. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> what do you – so you're, you're a fellow that's very familiar with world history. What do you think happened to those amazing, tremendously, historically valuable, culturally significant meteors –
0: uh, I would, I would
1: have to say destroyed as evidence of witchcraft. Very close. I very, it. very close. A white guy stole them and sold them to a museum. Ah, uh, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so we'll post up a link to the accurate fun facts, uh, post on this, but yeah. Um, uh, there are some fantastic pictures of this horrible thing that happened. Uh, in 1897, uh, some asshole—I don't even want to mention who it was. It was one of the guys that was exploring the northern pole. Uh, he sold all three of these meteorites to a museum. I think it was in New York. Um, and there were each one—one one of them actually uh, weighed 36 tons. And there are some really, really cool pictures we've got here on the Accurate Fun Facts Tumblr of them moving these meteors and how they actually hoisted them up back before winches and stuff existed with <laughs> ropes and chains onto a ship. And it's really cool. You want some french uh, fries, meteor?
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's just you and me, meteor.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, they use walrus tusks. That's what they use for their handles. And uh, yeah, the only thing they had uh, that was hard enough to Chip flakes off of the meteorites by the way was volcanic rock
0: interesting, cool. so it had to be like dolomite or something super hard and super dense
1: yeah, it must have been i'm not sure i didn't look into the uh the geology of northern greenland
0: that's cool but yeah
1: that is uh if you want to look that up by the way that's inuit i n u g h i t specifically
0: that's super uh, cool this has been a fun show
1: it has been i've got just a couple more things and then
0: i've only I got we're... i've only got one left um I, i'd mentioned it to you oh, before I, I wanted to say it ahead of time but we just we blew right into it this is one of the the episodes where i get to learn something um i'm not i'm not super well versed in biology and the biological sciences uh we we've kept it pretty top level we talked about a lot of things outside um you know the specific scope of human anatomy um and that's been a lot of fun but uh Got
1: into a little theology, a little cosmology. L- Not on the agenda, but I'm down with it.
0: A little bit of everything. <laughs> it's it's how we do. So uh, this is this has been an exceptionally fun show for me. I feel like I learned me a little something.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, then let me let me ask you something. I, I'm trying to catch you on these questions, because I want to. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I've been listening back to some of the episodes and you acted like a little bit of a dick on some of the episodes. No. Like Y'all are stupid and I'm smart. So I want to – I don't know. I just want to sort of demonstrate that we're both also pretty stupid and it's mostly research. You know, none of us know this shit until we look it up. You know, we're all – like we were talking about at the, the beginning, we're all pretty stupid. Fairly stupid. So uh, – yeah so here, here here's here's a question I got for you uh what what do you think happens to your body after you're you're dead does anything does any sort of uh active stuff still happen
0: oh man um well I know right when you die um your muscles all kind of relax and you end up voiding your bowels. Um, Indeed, and then ab- after that, no. I, I actually I, I don't think a lot of anything goes on. Your hair doesn't grow, your fingernails don't grow. Um, I'm pretty sure that once the oxygen stops moving through your body, the meat starts to decompose, and that's the end of that.
1: Right. So uh, you mentioned a very good point. Hair and fingernails don't actually grow. Uh, it it can appear like they do uh, when you're die. Your bodies dehydrate. Dries out and everything kind of
0: recedes, makes it look like things are growing, but they really aren't.
1: Your skin tightens. Um, And so, you know, everyone knows some friend who's a coroner or something, and they say, oh, yeah, I've seen the fingernails grow. Well, no, it's the nail beds receding. Um, And same with the hair. But uh, despite this, there is plenty of action after death. So, uh, in, in fact, the body... You know explodes in a way with life so bacteria beetles mites and worms um, all feed on the body contributing to the decomposition process decomposition is not just something the body does oh and yeah, no, there is there's got to be yeah, help right decomposition is the word we use to describe what things do to the body you know bacteria Bugs, arthropods, worms, mites. Uh, so uh, once your body's, what? oh, so here, here's a real cool one. Uh, one of the most enthusiastic uh, participators of this feeding frenzy is the forid or the coffin, also called the coffin fly. It's this little humpbacked fly, uh, also called the scuttle fly, because it's got this real weird, awkward flight, where kind of like bobs around like it's drunk. Um, its entire life is lived underground in corpses.
0: Start to so, finish. How does a how does a scuttle fly? What do they lay? Do they lay eggs on dead people, or how does this work? So
1: here's the thing: it is not uncommon for a scuttle fly. To dig nearly a meter down through the soil to reach a buried coffin, burrow inside, and feed on the body. Huh. Yeah, and it's just generations and generations and fucking generations of scuttleflies from that one, you know, pregnant scuttlefly that continue to feed on your body after you're dead.
0: That's amazing. So what do they then lay eggs on you, the pupae hatch, right, eat on you, develop, and then what, they climb back out and fly around until they find a new grave?
1: Yeah, so uh, I guess the last generation that has anything to to feed, or maybe just stragglers as the feeding is going on, find their way up uh, and, you know, locate a new host, or, you know, (laughs) locate the smell, and uh, tend to dig themselves down. Uh, We're going to be talking about a... Another type of forid that's in a similar genus to uh to the coffin fly in the next episode, so I don't want to spoil it but there's some cool stuff with that uh some real cool stuff, and we're gonna be talking about that next time uh before we do though here's here's a crazy question: Can a living person be a successful heart donor? I'm not talking about a valve, I'm talking about full heart.
0: Uh well, I guess to find success, right? If you remove the heart, um, your chance of survival is exceptionally low. Um I don't know, that's an interesting question. Um I I want to say yes. Uh, a living person could donate a heart, but I guess they would have to be what uh artificially ventilated or something and then taken off those machines, let the heart shut down, drain it and then take it in prime it and start it right
1: well so this is one of those weird medical anomalies um so it just so happens that uh patients with a certain type of severe lung disease have a better chance of even if they have a uh, so these crazy lung disease and an entirely healthy heart have a better chance of survival if they receive an intact heart and lung transplant
0: so they, they so uh, survival yeah, goes up with the combo shot.
1: Right. So the 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 results of and from what I understand, it's, um, with the with this the these lungs, it, it's really hard to, um. To transplant lungs only without a heart, because um, there is such an intricate. Valvular system between the heart and lungs, the lungs are one of the closest organs to the heart um, contrary to common sense what what common sense would tell you the heart is not on your left side, the heart is in the center of the chest yeah dead center and yeah it 's right you know between the lungs, a little behind it, and um <clears throat> there's just an intricate system of of uh capillaries and veins and arteries that go into the lung tissue and the bronchi and the alveoli, and trying to just sever all those and then put a new set in and connect all those plugs. You know, it's like trying to, you know, it would be like trying to sw- switch out the circuit board of your NES but keep the same 72-pin connector. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to, obviously to a, a, a much lesser ex- extent you know it's much harder to do with actual living tissue but it turns out it's just a whole lot easier to have an intact set of heart and lungs together and transplant those in and not worry about the connections between them and the surplus of that surgery if the patient's heart is healthy is a, a you know a surplus heart that is ready for transplant how crazy is that?
0: That is crazy. So if you need a lung transplant, we're taking your heart too. You're getting them both, but don't worry. Your chances of starting back up again improve with this the extra heart transplant. That's counterintuitive.
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, the first guy to ever do this was a guy in the UK. His name is Magdi Yacoub. Uh, he was a surgeon. He's currently a professor and a knight, which is dope. Uh, first one of the, they're called these domino implants or domino transplants rather was done in 1987. So fairly recent.
0: Interesting. Neat.
1: Yeah. Cool stuff. Little, little, little bit of the medical, but, uh, we're going to definitely do some, some whole full on medical episodes in the future. Um, this has been a cool
0: one. Yeah. We're, we're coming up on our two hours. Um, I came prepared with one tidbit. I have a favorite disease. Yeah, yeah, dude. Lay it on me. Uh, it it comes back to the the whole uh, evolution of viruses as they hop from species to species. Um, in research for this show, I discovered something called parrot chlamydia, and uh, I'm now a big fan of parrot chlamydia.
1: Parrot chlamydia is in like like polywanna cracker as in
0: as in polywanna cracker style parrots um this was a big thing in the 20s um south american imports of parrots as domestic pets were uh i guess a trendy thing for the first time in the states and sure enough um parrots carry the potentially fatal version of chlamydia uh called pistachosis um they called it parrot fever for a while but uh, it's it's like regular chlamydia except it has the uh the added benefit of delusional paranoia. So that's a lot of fun. Yikes. Yeah.
1: That doesn't sound fun.
0: That's a uh, screeching parrot chlamydia. How would you like to have to call somebody up and explain that?
1: <laughs> uh well, sir, it uh <laughs> Look, uh, this is going to be hard. I'm sure you've got your
0: own calls to make. You've got parrot chlamydia. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Antibac-
0: uh, anti- r- antibacterial <laughs> drugs will take care of it.
1: There uh insert here Ricky Gervais's bit on AIDS. That was Learn You Something. Good pod. <laughs> good show.
0: We enjoy doing good it. Good show. It, I want I want to encourage people to reach out to us with fun topics. Um Yeah. Du- we are dubious theories, statistics, anything.
1: We'll cover it. Yeah, man. Give us uh Give us some shit to talk about. I like, you know, I, I, I like to I like to hear you guys input. Loving the feedback. If you got any suggestions, let us know. Um, but yeah. Uh, speaking of the human body and diseases, uh, I, Beaker, I heard uh, a, a new joke about Ebola. Oh, but, uh, did you? you? You probably won't get it anyway.
0: So. <laughs>